Hello, my name's Jonathan Self and I'm the founder of Honey's Real Dog Food. Honey's was delighted to provide the funding for this podcast. If you're looking for more information on raw feeding and canine nutrition, you can download a free copy of the best-selling guide, The Natural Feeding Handbook, from www.honeysrealdogfood.com. Hello and welcome to the Dog Nutrition Podcast. I'm Penny Borum. And I'm Seb Masters. In our last episode, we heard vets and dog nutritionists who are convinced that the emphasis on carbohydrates in our dog's food has contributed to a health crisis for our canine friends. It turns out dogs are more likely to get cancer than any other creature alive. Many of these same professionals feel that carbs and sugar have played their part in these high rates of cancer. We also touched on the rise of raw feeding and heard that many owners are turning to raw in an effort to boost their dog's health. In this episode, we're going to delve into this new tendency in more depth, looking at both the perceived benefits and perceived risks of feeding raw. But first, we want to take you to Essex, to one particular independent veterinary practice called Wiley's. Wiley's has been breaking new ground with an innovative experiment. It's a healthcare plan for dogs that incorporates nutrition. Penny went to visit Wiley's. She wanted to find out why the vets there believe that this type of care plan could help both dogs and veterinary practices to thrive. Hello, hi, I'm here to see Richard Doyle. Vet Richard Doyle is one of four partners at Wiley's, which is a practice of 25 vets. Wiley's is a fiercely independent small animal practice with two branches in Essex, one in Upminster and one in Brentwood. The Wiley's practice holds strongly to the belief that to be healthy, dogs need to be fed a species-appropriate diet and that dogs are carnivores who need meat, and importantly, raw meat. When I met Richard, he explained to me that he believes the current veterinary practice model is failing pets, owners... And vets too. The current model is that client owns pet, pet gets sick, client brings sick pet to vet, vet extracts money to go through the diagnostic process or the treatment process. That's how we make our money. That's our financial model. So whenever there's a problem, sooner or later, there's the discussion about, okay, so how much is this going to cost? And, you know, for dogs that are insured or cats that are insured, that level is higher than those that aren't as a general rule of thumb. But ultimately, there's a financial consideration to what is possible from a diagnostic and a treatment point of view. So I have to then as a vet say, okay, with that kind of money available, I need to cut down my diagnostic process or my treatment choices. Once I start doing that, I'm getting onto thin ice because I'm having to start to guess. And sooner or later, I'm going to guess wrong. I'm going to make an incorrect assessment and potentially make an incorrect suggestion. So if money is an object, which it pretty well always is at some point, then I generally have to compromise what I think is appropriate to do in that circumstances. This, Richard explains, is a soul-destroying model for everyone involved and is the reason why he and his previous partner came up with an innovative new model. My previous partner, Morkel Pino, and I were enjoying a nice bottle of uh, Malbec one, uh, <laughs> one evening and we were just talking about this dilemma and we were talking about it 
in terms of you know it's 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 actually a depressing model to work in thinking how can we actually turn this model on its head how can we make that point at which the decisions have to be made taking into account the financial resources how can we take money off the table and so this is really where the whole concept of the total care plan started our minds turned to an insurance kind of a model for a certain sum of money on a monthly basis which we could work out based on you know based on our, our, our database so they decided to set up a scheme which relies on pet owners paying a monthly subscription and then avoiding any other costs at all for their dogs' lives. Significantly, the scheme requires owners to feed their dogs raw food, which they buy from the practice. A few hundred out of their 12,000 patients have taken this up so far, and the practice regards it as their gold standard care. The subscription includes all medical care plus vaccines, parasite control and nutrition advice. If we take a young dog or kitten and we make sure that they are fed a species-appropriate diet, we make sure that they have preventative health care measures, we make sure that we see them frequently enough to pick up on any problems that they may have so that small problems don't become big problems. If we allow clients to bring their pets in free of charge any time they think that there might be a problem, we're onto something here and we can work the numbers to make sure that everyone wins. You know that financially it works for us, financially it works for the client because it's an insurance type of concept. And they then don't have to have other insurance. Presumably. They don't have to have other insurance and they, they can sleep well knowing that actually whatever happens it will be taken care of. They're not going to have those awkward conversations about how much is this going to cost or we can't afford it, so let's take option B or C. They need to obviously buy the food from your practice. Absolutely. You know, we're so focused on nutrition as a key part of um, health and well-being that an essential part of this, this plan, the total care plan, is that these patients of ours are on a species-appropriate nutrition, so basically a carnivorous diet. We need to ensure that actually that is happening. And the only way we can really ensure that is to make sure that clients are buying the, the, the meat from us. We sell it at a discounted rate, so it's not that we're trying to make a huge margin on the food, putting these people into this plan and making them buy the food from us. It's discounted because, as I say, it, it has to be an attractive proposition to the client. It has to be affordable. And um, from our perspective, it's, it's without a doubt the healthiest option. It's our gold standard. That's why we call it the total care plan. And um, as I said, it, it sort of turns the current paradigm completely on its head and it creates a different dynamic because for the first time, we have some financial responsibility. So if we don't do a good job, sooner or later, something's going to go wrong at our cost. So it really behoves us, pays us, to make sure that we do the necessary, we do the, the health and maintenance, and we make sure that everything is going along smoothly. It never comes down to, okay, so how much is this going to cost? Okay, it's not my responsibility as a vet, it's your responsibility, it's your dog, your money, so over to you, you know, and if you can't afford it, mm, tough shit, yeah. you know. How much do you have to pay a month? It varies according to the breed, um, so uh, your, your Labradoodle is going to be in the order of 70, 80 pounds a month, and your Bulldog is going to be 200 um, so breeds where you know that there's innate problems with them, 
have to charge more because yeah 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 um, unfortunately I mean we yeah we started the plan doing it on a weight basis um, but we found that certain breeds and unfortunately the brachycephalics uh, were amongst those that were incredibly expensive <laughs> so what, would, pet, would pet plan do a similar thing someone like pet plan would they do mm. a similar thing and charge more for a, a, a type no breed? totally it's, yeah. it's all breed related breed and age related so it wouldn't be that much different for someone that they would probably a bit, obviously more but they're getting the food include part of that there are some key differences between standard insurance and the total care plan. Um, the total care plan, for instance, includes preventative health care, so the vaccinations, the worming and flea treatment, which, which most uh, insurance, uh, insurance policies don't cover the preventative health side of it or the cost of those. Um, it, uh, it, it's a complete game changer and, um, I, you know, I, I expect that more and more providers will will latch on to this concept. Anyway, time will tell. But what about the hygiene around dealing with raw food? One of the biggest issues that veterinary professionals and dog owners have concerns about is the potential for raw food to hold dangerous bacteria and pathogens. We wanted to take a deeper look at this. You may recognise the dulcet tones of Darcy eating his dinner. While Darcy's owner, Joy, is a committed raw feeder. We heard from her in an earlier episode talking about why she switched to feeding raw. I asked Joy for her perspective on feeding Darcy raw food. I mean, how do you keep things clean and hygienic? Are you my, aware of bacteria and other Yeah, my, my take on that is if you cook raw meat for yourself and your family, then you're dealing with a raw food diet, aren't you? So as long as you're hygienic in your kitchen anyway around the consumption of human raw food, raw ingredients, then I don't really see what the difference is with the dog. Would you always put um, Darcy's bowl in the dishwasher, for example, afterwards? Would you, I mean, is Not always, I'll either, but I do tend to wash it with soapy hot water uh, and either use it for a couple of times and then I'll put it in the dishwasher for a hot, every now and again. You've never had any problems? No, absolutely never had any problems. Vet Danny Chambers, you may remember, voiced his concerns about raw feeding in previous episodes. He believes that the risks of eating raw outweigh any known benefits. We wanted to ask him a bit more about what he believes these risks are. You can feed a dog raw feed and you can make it a healthy diet, but it takes effort, it takes research, it takes input from experts to make sure you are feeding a raw, a, a healthy raw diet. So it's not to say that a lot of dogs that eat raw food aren't living very happy, healthy lives, because most of them are. But there are risks that don't, that, that you know, that barely exist when you feed a, a, a normal sort of dog food. And I think that people play down those risks. And given that it takes so much more effort and has the potential to go wrong to feed a, a good quality raw diet the benefits don't outweigh the risk especially if you you know if you're a busy person you know you've got kids to look after and you're going to start you know creating meals from scratch from your dog as well you know at some and the other aspect of this is the public health risk as well so you know there are bacteria called cryptosporidium e coli salmonella campylobacter you know they can make dogs sick they can also make humans sick and 
the people who are advocates of raw food and they're completely right so well you know you have to handle raw meat properly which you which you should do but you know especially if you're living with kids or toddlers you know there's nothing to stop the dog licking the toddler's face you know once it's had a bowl full of raw food and passing on some of these bacteria and as a vet you wouldn't bother advising it that's how what it comes down to but you know i'd certainly support someone who's desperate to feed their dog raw you know it can be done well you know if they get a, it's easier if you get a good quality company that's selling raw that's that's a lot easier as well it will be a lot more expensive and a lot of people can't afford to do that and if they can afford a good quality food and it's and it's slightly cheaper and it, it makes them they can keep the dog as healthy then it's hard to you know, recommend it but it's it's fine if that's what they want to do with their money you know it's um you know if someone walked into the consult room tomorrow i've got a new puppy what should i feed it i've got no reason to go well spend more money and 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 give it raw I put vet Danny Chambers' concerns to vet Richard Doyle, who you've just heard describing his total care plan at Wiley's veterinary practice, a plan whose main pillar is raw feeding. Richard explained that when a company starts producing raw food commercially, they actually have to, on a weekly basis, submit samples from their batches to DEFRA, the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. If they detect any salmonella at all, the batch is condemned. There are some bacteria where they have a tolerance. DEFRA has decided in his wisdom that a certain amount of tolerance for certain of the bacteria is fine. But in terms of, you know, everyone gets really uptight about salmonella. A couple of things to know about salmonella. No registered commercial raw food producer can produce their food without regular bacterial counts and initially it's on a weekly basis and as time goes on if a given producer is consistently getting negative results then it goes to every two weeks and three weeks and every month but it's a minimum of monthly so pretty well commercial raw raw meat dog food producers and cat food producers can guarantee that they don't have salmonella in their food at that point in time, at the point of production. What about when you get home with it? So what they should do is take that frozen food home and put it in their freezer until they're ready to use it and not break the chain. But obviously the company itself, DEFRA, lose control over the process at that point and can't take responsibility for irresponsible food storage. But irresponsible food storage occurs, potentially can occur with any food. It's not just a raw food thing. The other thing about salmonella is there are so many subtypes of salmonella and only a small proportion of them are pathogenic. So isolating a salmonella species in a dog's poo for argument's sake is is not the full picture. Um, and yet, you know, anytime that happens, um, the naysayers jump up and down, waving their arms. Oh, Salmonella's been isolated from this dog. Well, Salmonella, most of the subspecies of Salmonella and E. coli and those bugs that you've got down there are considered to be commensal organisms. They are part of a dog's normal microbiome. So, and I think this is another piece of the puzzle which we have yet to appreciate both in the human world and also the veterinary world just how important the microbiome is to our health and well-being. It's fundamental, absolutely fundamental, and a diverse microbiome consisting of you know, a wide range of different commensal bacteria is essential, and absolutely, without question, essential to a healthy 
life. Would, so would you actually say that virtually no dogs can be badly affected, but what about the humans that live with them? We've been promoting raw food for 20 odd years. Touch wood, we've not seen an outbreak of any of those in any of the clients or the pets that we treat. So for me, the question is not, can we identify these pathogens in a dog's stool? The question is, are those dogs ill? And are the people who live with those dogs ill? And yes, there are some cases, especially immune compromised people, that are at risk. No question about that at all. Um, and then you'd have to be careful with any raw food around a you know, compromised person. You, you? You, you totally would. The question to me is, how important are these bugs for a healthy microbiome of the pet and the humans? I dare say that, you know, uh, low-grade exposure, a bit like COVID, you know, low-grade exposure builds up our immune response. So the odd E. coli bacteria, the odd salmonella bacteria that I happen to ingest is part of living on this planet. It's part of becoming immune competent. It's part of being and uh, it's part of being healthy as well. You know, I'm not saying that one doesn't need to consider immune-suppressed individuals and raw feeding. In fact, we promote that. You know, that does need to be a consideration when someone takes the initiative or at least considers putting their, their pet onto a meat-based diet. I noticed downstairs on one of your freezers there was a, a notice saying precisely that, saying, yeah. do be careful around tiny children and immunocompromised people. Yeah. So you yeah. only talk to them about it. Yeah. Yeah, it opens up the conversation and it, it is a conversation that needs to be had without a doubt. Vet Richard Doyle highlighting the supreme importance of taking precautions when feeding raw, especially when immune compromised people, small children and pregnant women are involved. However, he was also emphasising the importance of us giving more thought to the crucial benefits of a healthy gut biome. Dr. Connor O'Halloran is a small animal practicing vet who is also active in veterinary academia. In particular, he studied microbacterial diseases. We wanted to talk to him about the challenges people might face feeding their dogs raw in terms of both the animal and the owner. Connor O'Halloran reiterated vet Richard Doyle's points about the regulations that commercial companies have to adhere to and also agreed with Richard that dogs can cope with many of the bacteria they come across. You're equally right in that actually most dogs can be on a raw food diet and because they've got they, their scavengers by nature. So they've evolved as scavengers. They'll eat things that have been dead for a while. You know, if you look even at how domesticated the Labrador is and we see them you know, scoffing anything off a, off a beach that they can get their faces into. My family Labrador, we were down at the beach and managed to scoff. I couldn't, it was so dead, I don't even know what it was. And he was ill for like two days and he was fine. He didn't need any treatment, he didn't need any antibiotics. He was regretful of his decision making, but he was okay. Because that's the, the dog stomach like that's what it's been designed to deal with but where i've seen problems specifically from an infectious disease point of view is where we start feeding types of of meat specifically raw meat that animals have not gone through that evolutionary process with so for example the domestic cat is very adapted to eating songbirds small birds small rodents rabbits that, that those kind of, of 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 
prey out items. My PhD was in mycobacterial infections. Rabbits in the UK have quite a high burden of a mycobacteria called paratuberculosis, which can cause a big problem for sheep that graze with rabbits. To date, in the UK, we have not found a single rabbit pass on that infection to a cat, even though cats hunt rabbits all of the time. And that's probably because cats have evolved. They have very high amounts of stomach acid, very low pHs. It probably is enough to kill any mycobacteria that they are regularly exposed to and have evolved eating to the point where it's probably not a problem for them. Similarly, infections that mice carry, so leptospirosis, which is a disease that dogs need to be vaccinated against, we don't vaccinate cats against that, even though cats go out and and eat the actual host species, which is rodents. So we do see some cats, obviously, that get clinical disease from that, but the vast majority, not a problem. And that's probably because they've co-evolved over a long period of time with the pathogen in some context, so they have some adaptation for avoiding it. Whereas when we've seen issues, it's been because there's been a crossover. So where you have a a trans-species crossover, that's when your gap in immunity is not not so great. So, for example, when we saw Mycobacterium bovis cause a lot of problems in cats back a few years ago now, the M. bovis strain was isolated from venison. So cats are probably not used to dealing with the normal pathogens that exist in and around deer because it's not a species that they naturally would ever hunt or eat. So while there's lots of different strains, the deer-type strains cats are not used to. So if those cats had eaten mice and they'd been exposed to the mouse strain, they probably would have been, majority of them would have probably been okay. Now, we do see cats that do get TB from voles, but, you know, not very commonly compared to other infectious diseases. So there are problems, but it's it can be because of that crossover exposure. Um, and so actually feeding, when people talk about raw feeding, that there's a term called biologically appropriate raw feeding, and that's an idea of feeding types of meat and species of meat animal, if you like, <laughs> that that those that the animals that we keep as domestic animals would naturally be exposed to. So cats, for example, feeding them bird-type meats rather than venison, because that's what they naturally have co-evolved with. And so that, like you were saying there... The, the, there's so many strains of salmonella and only some of them cause a problem. And typically it's when you get exposed to one that's not adapted to your species, you have a much higher risk of a problem. Now you do get, don't get me wrong, you do get problems with the ones that you are exposed to anyway. So, you know, we see cats get disease from toxoplasmosis from rodents, even though they've evolved with rodents and hunted rodents. So it's not that cats can't get diseases from their prey, they absolutely can, but you're, it's a much higher risk if you're feeding them a species that they have not co-evolved with, I think, based on the types of infections that I see regularly as an infectious disease person. That was Connor O'Halloran explaining the importance of feeding our pets the meat that they have co-evolved with. He demonstrates how a greater understanding of this subject can give people more peace of mind. Many professionals are scared of bacteria, and in particular, the risk of it being transmitted to humans. 
Dr. Brendan Clark is the head veterinary surgeon at Towerwood Vets in Leeds and the president of the Raw Feeding Veterinary Society. He believes that this fear of bacteria is unfounded. We see a lot of people concerned about the possibility of pathogens. And to some degree, this is a reflection of our risk-averse society where every single bacterium virus is just the plague that should be wiped off the face of the earth. We wouldn't be here, our pets wouldn't be here if they weren't symbiotic with those friendly bacteria. You know, it is so essential that we have a microbiome. It's a part of our genetic makeup. And it's a myth to think that by purely feeding them raw, we have massively escalated the danger that those pets pose to the pet owners. The number of times that those dogs run through the park with a tennis ball in their mouth and the child is picking it up and throwing it again. And you know, there's probably as many bacteria on that tennis ball surface as there would ever be in the raw food, in the raw food bowl, in you know the, the mouths of the dog. You know, that is just as liable. We haven't kicked off for the last 30 years about kids throwing tennis balls. You know, I, I often harken back to that. And in fact, actually, there's so many studies out there saying having pets, having kids that go out and you know get their hands in the dirt, actually have better microbiomes, better quality of life, better immune systems for doing that. And I think suppose that we can create a sterile ultra high processed food and overcome a bacterial risk is an illusion it's never going to happen and if it did happen in a laboratory situation it's not going to help the health of that patient i understand that colleagues are nervous because they are taught this risk aversion but, you know, if you've got a one in 10,000 chance, do you put that patient off being given something which has been shown to be healthier? That's taking the risk aversion to the ultimate. You know, we would never be knocking animals out to do any procedure on them if that was the level of risk aversion for anesthesia. So why they're doing that when 9,999 patients would be absolutely fine on that particular food. There's always going to be a pathogen out there that we're going to be looking into. And all we can say is look to responsible food producers that have gone through the processes. They are taking care with incoming ingredients. They are making sure there's no crossover within the factory, you know, that there is batch traceability. All of those assurances are out there in standards that are available. And, you know, we'd encourage if you're really, really nervous, look to those standards. There is no way, you know, we've got professionals out there pretending that the vet would be liable if they talked about raw food to the pet owner. It is not a liability issue because somebody could store the ultra high processed food wrongly and it go moldy and that's going to be a danger to the pets. You know, in the States, we see the number of salmonella cases that are from pet foods not coming from raw. They're coming from ultra high processed foods. People perceive are okay. They get contaminated and then 
the child doesn't realize they're contaminated, you can't see these bacteria, they get ill from them. It's just misleading to say that there should be an anxiety about feeding raw. Dr. Anna Hjelm Bjorkman, who is a professor in the Faculty of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Helsinki in Finland, is a veterinary practitioner and an academic. Anna and her research team have so far concluded that raw feeding does seem to be hugely beneficial for dogs. But, as she explained, they're still not clear as to precisely why that is. Anna really highlighted the way more research is needed and she started by explaining that more studies focusing on comparisons are essential. If we would just get a bit more funding and be able to do more of these these kind of of uh, trials that are are diets where you you kind of give diets for long times to to different dogs. The the thing is that to do really good research you need to have also healthy dogs in the trials because you need to see is that something that we're seeing in atopy dogs is that something that would happen to all dogs despite if they're healthy or not or if they have atopy or not you would always need to have one totally normal kibble as a control group just to see what would happen if you don't have anything special and uh, and then you can kind of of have different type of of questions that you want to answer so at the moment as i said we don't have an agenda of showing that raw is better but what we've seen is that raw is better but we have no idea if it is because it's raw it could totally be because there's less carbohydrates it could be because there's more animal proteins it could be because there's less kind of of colorings and and preservatives and things that you usually need to put in non-frozen food uh, it could be that there's much more bacteria and that even good and bad bacteria is actually good because it kind of of makes your immune system work in a normal way so it might be that that it's probiotics or that it's even pathogens that are doing a good job uh, it might be that there's more vitamins and trace elements and things that come in a more natural way because it's the only thing that it has been as a process that it has been through is like cutting and frozen whereas in in the dry foods most of the things that you use there are bone and meat meals so it's it's kind of rendered meat which means that they go through a very very high kind of cooking point and drying and so they're kind of ultra processed so there's we we work with about 12 different theories of why raw food is better at the moment and uh, there's still i would say there's 10 years of of research to be done before we can really pinpoint why uh, some foods are better than others and and why some foods are are worse than others and and it's a really thrilling journey to be on Dr Anna Bjorkman's comparison studies are crucial when it comes to really understanding the impact of nutrition on health One of the vets who has been keeping a keen eye on these studies is Dr Brendan Clark I asked him to shed more light on the research that has examined the effects of both a raw meat and processed food diet 
on general health. There are papers coming out showing the increased inflammatory processes going on when you're feeding an ultra high processed foods versus feeding raw dogs risk in helsinki have done uh, i think two or three of those there's also been some backup now of one paper from north point pets with nikki kamak and another run in conjunction with dr karen becker over in the states there isn't evidence to say that a ultra high processed food is better than a low processed raw diet you know we've had mainline tv programs even talking about the effects of ultra high processed foods on children and the devastating effects that that has on their inflammatory problems and what's happening with their gut microbiome in response to these ultra high processed foods so there's lots of evidence look at other species that are fed processed foods and you know look at the the human models even the research that's out there saying if you feed ultra high processed foods over and over again you will cause inflammation within that patient Brendan tells us that we already have a wealth of evidence that details the detrimental effects of processed food and that studies on humans clearly outline a link between these diets and inflammation. But what is the biology behind this link? Brendan gives us an example. A good example is the shape of the omega-3s and 6s. You know, these are essential fatty acids which are utilised in cell membranes. You know, you heat them, you can create trans fats within those, you know, oxidised fats within that process of heating and that means that the shape of those fats won't line up to create a lovely smooth surface to the cell you'll end up with kinks within the the molecule and they'll glycate so they'll end up with sugar molecules on top of that that becomes an inflammatory cell wall that's waiting to be picked up by our immune cells as there's something wrong with that it needs attacking you know and as soon as you've got that that attacking involves inflammatory mediators, that becomes a source of inflammation and chronic inflammation. And you don't have to take a very fast step to then look at, okay, what are the consequences of that level of inflammation to lead to so many of the diseases that we've put down as idiopathic, or we, you know, that means without known cause, uh, or that we put down that we see, you know, why are our dogs getting arthritis so readily? Why are so many of them getting dermatitis so readily? These are symptoms. They're not diagnoses. They are inflammation of those areas of the body. You know, and so it goes on, you know, and that can be seen. Pancreatitis, that's also been isolated there. Things like diabetes, that's an inflammatory disease that's leading to that attack on the islets of Langerhans to cause diabetes. You know, even the cancers, there are inflammatory processes that lead to those cancers happening. People are waking up to this. They're finally saying, okay, we need to look at how we can uh, deal with this. Well, one of the primary things we should be doing is looking at the diets, the food. We can't be trying to suppress the inflammation and still pumping in pro-inflammatory foods at the other end. It just doesn't add up. And while it might seem obvious that this doesn't add up, there are a number of veterinary practitioners who believe that there is still not enough evidence 
for them to recommend their clients switch from an ultra-processed diet to a raw meat diet. However, Brendan says there's nothing to be afraid of. So many people are risk-averse, and it's like the dreaded unknown that, you know, if something were to happen, well, it's on my professional head, be it. And it's to say, well, actually, no, you know, we've got tens of thousands of years of dogs feeding like this. We have not managed in the last hundred years to corrupt the breeds so badly that they can only survive on artificially produced foods. It is perfectly natural to feed carnivores meat for a start. There are safe ways to do it. And ridiculously, you know, people will talk about it like it's anecdotal if you see it yourself and then you eulogize about it. Well, no, when loads of people have that experience, that is data. Okay. Of course, all data starts with n equals one because you start the data collection. Okay. But ultimately, when you start to see 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 patients, then 200 patients, then 1,000 patients getting better with this way of feeding a more biologically appropriate food, you too will understand the power of experiencing it for yourself. It is human nature to truly embrace something that you have personally experienced over what your friends have experienced, over what your family has experienced, over what is then written in general magazines and news articles. If we see it ourselves, then we think, yeah, do you know what, that works and I'll repeat it. So you have to therefore take that step to embrace it, to say, okay, it's not unnatural to feed this way. I'm going to give it a go and see what happens. In this episode, we focused on the thorny but fascinating issue of raw feeding and bacteria. We've heard about the importance of the gut microbiome, how essential it is for our dogs to eat species they have co-evolved with, and learned that more funding is needed to allow researchers to get to the nub of a complex issue that is proving to be of supreme importance for our dogs' well-being, their nutrition. You've been listening to the Dog Nutrition Podcast. I'm Seb Masters. And I'm Penny Borum. In the next episode, we're going to gnaw on a subject that is close to our dogs' hearts, bones, and reflect on what we've learned so far about what is best for our dogs' health. Please do join us next time. And as usual, we'll leave you with Darcy, really making the most of his dinner. If you're looking for more information on raw feeding and canine nutrition, you can download a free copy of the best-selling guide, The Natural Feeding Handbook, from www.honeysrealdogfood.com.